Welcome to a brand new episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast. In this episode, we are joined by our fellow colleagues on the back end, our back end engineers, Yuzhual and Eric, to talk with us about how back end and front end engineers can work effectively together. Yuzhual and Eric, can you give us a brief introduction of who you are, what you do, and what your favorite happy hour beverage is? My name is Eric. I work on the growth engineering team here at Netflix. We're responsible for maintaining the back end portion of the sign up flow. So that is the primary means of acquiring new customers at Netflix, and it requires um, both the back end and the front end to, you know, sort of work together to make sure we offer a smooth customer journey. Uh, and day to day, I'm uh, kind of doing a bit of coding, a bit of project management at this point in time, drinking a lot of coffee. <laughs> Favorite happy hour beverage has got to be a Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir, mm-hmm. right on. With caviar. Usual. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Ujwal Tiagi. I'm also on growth engineering team. I manage the partner and payments part of growth engineering team. Um, as Eric mentioned, growth engineering team owns all the backend services for running sign up or building sign up flow across different platforms. We'll go into more details about what we do later on. And as part of that, we uh, work with many different teams, UI specifically. We're kind of an extension over UI and at, uh, within Netflix microservices architecture, we sort of sit in between UI and all the other downstream services. My favorite happy hour beverage would be um, Old Fashioned. I recently tried some in Chicago. Those were really good. That's what I usually enjoy. It's a good choice. That's one of my favorites as well. I've yeah. definitely said that on episodes in the past. <laughs> All right. Well, Jem, you want to give a brief introduction? Uh, Jem Young, Senior Software Engineer at Netflix. And my day-to-day responsibility is uh, curating the list of lunch items and critiquing them one by one. Today, I had a lovely beef uh, ravioli. It's pretty good. Mm. I mean, it's getting harder. There's more and more on our lunch menu. It's a hard job, but you know, that's my day to day. Got to do it. <laughs> and I'm Ryan Burgess. I'm a software engineering manager at Netflix. For my lunches, I just go to the easiest thing possible. I don't have time to look at this menu that Jem's curating, so maybe I need to get on that. In each episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast, we like to choose a keyword that if it's mentioned at all in the episode, we will all take a drink. What did we decide today's keyword is? API. API. All right. If any of us say the word API from now on, we will all take a drink. Okay. Not yet. Not yet. (laughs) (laughs) From now on. All right. So let's jump right in. I'm interested to know a little bit more. What's the day-to-day of your jobs as back-end engineers? What does that entail? (laughs) I can talk more about what our team really does because uh, I, I guess most people know about what a UI, te- UI team does here, building the user experience. So what when a user goes to our Netflix.com, what they see is being rendered by the UI team, Jim and uh, Ryan here. But the data they, you need for building all of that, the uh, information you need to decide what uh, response to a call to action should be like, that is all coming from our services. So we sit in between UI and the rest of downstream ser- uh, downstream services. And at Netflix, with the microservices architecture, downstream services are very fine-grained. You have a payment service, you have account service, you have uh, AB experimentation services, several services that are doing very specific things we sort of do a code screen work. We talk to many different services there. We also maintain all of the sign-up business logic in, within our systems. Things like what uh, what the experience is in a certain country or on a certain device that is all decided by us. As you know, Netflix uh, sign-up is supported on all the devices. And but I guess 
uh, between these devices, there are nuances, differences. And in order to provide that unified sign-up experience, our team and the services that our team owns, that uh, that manages the sign-up experience across all the different devices. Yeah, and I think that one's a big important one from us being on the UI side is now we're building UIs for four platforms for sign-up. We're doing it for iOS, Android, website, and TV. And so us being able to carry that business, I mean, we could, we could do all the business logic on the UI, but that would be really, really difficult. And so we rely heavily on your teams to basically create those APIs for us. Cheers. 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 I would just add that um, along with all that, you know, business logic and sort of sitting between the front end and the back end, we also, as engineers, as part of our day-to-day work, there are a lot of insights and a lot of t- telemetry and operational excellence that comes into it. So um, we do, you know, we have uh, on-call rotations. We have tons of business metrics that we need to keep an eye on. And so making sure that the various A-B tests that we might be allocating are are functioning correctly, making sure that um, the service is operating uh, at a certain level. These are all things that... Um, you know, as a backend team, or uh, definitely we're responsible to, since our service is definitely um, responsible for logging much of the data that is used as sort of the business uh, source of truth. So uh, there's a lot of um, not just writing code, but making sure the service is doing the correct thing. That, that's a really good point because reliability and availability are very important for our services, given that. For we, Netflix in general, yes. yeah. <laughs> especially our services, given that we. Uh, control all the signups we we kind of drive all the signups and log in for netflix if our services are down people cannot sign up or log in so that's a very big business impact and that's why reliability and availability are very important now i think that's important and definitely makes it easier on us when things are working the ui will work too which is great you mentioned uh downstream services like what does that mean yeah so downstream services for us would be services like payments accounts these are the places where we go to to get data our services don't really own any data we don't manage anything in terms of user state or anything other than that what we do is when we get a request from a client from a ui let's say browser or mobile phone we in order to decide what experience to build for that particular user we need to collect data from many different places so we go to account to see if there is some information on the user and that might influence the experience that they get. We also go to payment service to see uh, if once we have decided where they are, where the user is going to land, let's say on the payment page, we'll go to payment service to see if they, what kind of payment methods are available in that country for that user. And we will do the same thing for other services. We go to AB. All our features are AB tested, so every single request that comes to us makes multiple calls to let's AB. We find out whether user is allocated to certain tests. If not, can this use, should use this user be allocated to a certain test? So we do all of those things before we decide what the experience will look like. So once we get data from each of these services, we then apply our own business logic on top of that. So we use that data to decide what the final experience will look like, but ultimate control is within our services to to make that decision. And then we have a separate, more like a state machine for each platform, and that decides, that will then uh, fi- find, give that final response back to the client. And for example, if it's browser, we'll send it to the browser state machine. 
which will know about what browser is capable of, what are the things that it can and cannot do, and then f uh, build something that is compatible with build something that is compatible with browser. So you're in in simpler terms for people who don't work in Silicon Valley necessarily. So you're an aggregated interface for the front end. So you collect all these other services and data from them, and then you prevent present an interface so that the UI doesn't have to deal with them directly? Would that be a good way of summarizing? In a way, yes. So uh, to give you some context around this, we used to have, uh, we were at a place where UIs were directly talking to these services, and it just became difficult for us to scale at that point. So now we wanted to uh, onboard sign up on more devices, and that meant that UI's team had to recreate all of this logic in each of these new platforms. By putting us in between, we've abstracted all of that complexity away from UI. So now there's one place which already has everything in place. So any onboarding simply means talking to us. So we do aggregate these APIs from downstream services, downstream being these uh, payment-specific services. But on top of that, we have our own business logic to decide. So it's not enough just to know what payment methods are available. We also uh, combine that with the user state. We combine that with A-B a, a, a test that user is allocated to. and based on all of that information, so we form a final response or decision on that request. I mean, I even like one of the things of the responses that you get as a UI engineer is knowing the fields and everything that I'm going to need to build that UI. But even just this like one simple thing that sounds stupid, but it's so good, is getting the regex as a response so that I'm now validating an email address against the same regex that you're using on the back end. It seems minor, but I've definitely been in companies where you're almost emailing with the backend mm -hmm. team, hey, which regex are you using to validate that email address? And there's been so much value in just having that consistency because to the user, they don't want to be like, oh, well, I typed in a valid email on the client, but then now the server saying it's invalid just because two teams couldn't talk together. And so to me, that was even very, very powerful to actually have that in the response. I might just do a quick plug for uh, the growth engineering blog post we have on Medium. I think we'll that will actually go into some more depth and have some imagery around this back end, front end, middle tier that we're kind of discussing. We think of what growth engineering is doing as more of a middle tier type of thing. So yeah, we'll put I think we'll put that in the show notes. And just to, I think an example actually helps too. Like if you if you think about the Netflix signup flow, like most people probably haven't gone through it in quite a while. It's more like, you know, the member experience is really the what a lot of people are thinking about when they think of Netflix, but the signup flow is, you know, the first the first thing people kind of encounter on their journey with Netflix. And if you just think about the signup flow, it, it it consists of a welcome screen. It's sort of like the landing page. And what the backend's giving you there is, you know, uh, what the what the CTA should do next, uh, the call to action buttons. Uh, where should we take the user next? We help drive some of the backend and middle tier decisions, or like which imagery should we show to these users? You might notice there's some content imagery on the homepage. We can't just sh show the same content globally because our licensing for content's different in different countries. So we have to, you know, make sure that we're showing things that are relevant to a given customer or visitor. And then if you proceed through the sign up funnel, the next thing is plan selection so we show you what the product offerings are so you can make you know the right choice for whatever devices you might have or the number of people in your household that kind of thing um, the next thing would be registration and so as you're moving through these pages like uh, behind the scenes we are calling 
the backend services to get the, the product offerings that are available. We can sort those things. We can mutate those responses in the middle tier. Make sure that you could have AB logic, for example. Make sure that uh, if you want to test of a given feature of a given offering, that would happen in the middle tier. And then the, we're kind of putting an, an abstraction between the backend services and the client side. Of course, registration. Uh, there's some things like uh, regular expression validation that can happen in, in our layer. And then once those things are validated, then we can go ahead and, you know, actually pr- process a, uh, an actual registration request in the backend systems, at which point the user actually has, of course, data in the system and an account. And then you can proceed through payment and the rest of the signup flow and all those. Along the way, it's sort of, uh, we're the place where we can have those abstractions in place to add any more logic on top of these calls, uh, especially AB logic. That's sort of the core of what we do. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think also juggling with all different countries you mentioned there too, is that there's a lot of permutations between countries that you're having to deal with and that can affect what the UI looks like and and responds to just depending on the country, on the device, everything. I'm not sure if, Jem, you were here at that point when we built this protocol. Were you here, Ryan? Yeah, you were here. So you probably remember all the discussion we had and this particular approach looked so different from what we were used to, giving all the control to servers. So it we ended up with a protocol that was entirely server driven, but client is the one which is specifying exactly what they need. So we would have those discussions with the client, but client didn't have to worry about what this, where we are getting this data from, and are we able to maintain this consistency across platforms? What the uh, look would look like, uh, what the experience will actually look like. So client didn't have to worry about any of that, and that was client giving away a lot of control and at the same time overhead as well about how the experience is at the end gonna be built. So we ended up building something where server took all the responsibility for giving the actual data model that is needed to finally rendering that particular page. And that was a big shift from what people were used to at that time. So with so much discussion about, is this the right thing we are doing or not? But, but when we started working with it, I guess, UI teams were the most uh, happy team afterwards because there's, you know, so much It complexity. decoupled it too. I think that was a big thing. Yeah. So that was, uh, uh, it took a long time to get there, but I think we are still finding it very useful to have this driven by server where server decides what the validation should look like, what, what fields are available, and have the capability of dynamically changing these fields and changing the experience as well. You know, what's what's really interesting is that other companies don't, do this and no other place that I've worked does the server drive everything and the client just consumes that and doesn't do any business logic and I think one of the reasons for that is one there's a high upfront cost to pay like you said in setting up the uh, the protocol that, that you all built it's a lot of upfront work it's a very 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 high upfront cost and it's a lot of trust that the front end team has to put in the back end team that it's all going to work out you two are going to stay in sync and I think that level of collaboration is really hard to achieve at uh, many companies and a lot of people just don't want to give up control it's just much easier for me to fix things rather than wait for Eric to fix them. But I think what has helped uh, with our collaboration, why our system works and like we have this state machine somewhere else and I don't have to worry about it is that like we maintain this open dialogue all the time. And I think uh, it's that specifically Eric, who I work with primarily and who was well in the beginning, like very responsive, very receptive and on the UI side. If we say, Hey, there's an issue and I've tracked it down to the bad, bad data coming back, we always sit down together and we, we isolate that and we fix it versus like, yeah, 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 it's your problem. Your tests are broken or something like that. 
I think that has really helped uh, like our back and forth. You've separated some concerns from, you know, not being very coupled on the like the code where it is very decoupled having a back end front end and they are separated. But it's like you still have to have a lot of those conversations and think strategically together. You know, who's going to own what? How is it going to interact? What does that contract look like? Or maybe I should just call it API. API, yes. Essentially. Waiting for <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> but I think a big thing that comes into the collaboration and how to collaborate really well is there's no way to get a, away from actually having conversations. I think it, it really helps talking with each other and working very collaborative together. And almost like physically sitting close together, I think, can be a very helpful thing too, is if you're working on on projects together, getting up from your desk and talking to one another is really important. Yeah, that- I don't think this protocol or the way we are doing it would have been so successful had it not been for this effective collaboration between our teams because every single change today we that has to be made requires a conversation between us, requires some discussion about what is how should we should uh, go about doing that. So I guess uh, collaboration is a must. It has to have... Uh, Without it, this protocol can't really be. It can't really work. And what is interesting is, we work in this cross-functional uh, plat- uh, sort of uh, design where there's UI representation, there's the us, there's other downstream services. I think we are still very loosely coupled because no one is, no one needs to know how the other team is doing it, but just have that trust, as you mentioned, Jam, is that you know where uh, everybody is doing their stuff right and in a way that unblocks the uh, the client from them or allows the client to do to build their uh, build their system uh, properly i feel the way we achieve it in terms of collaboration is like we have these project uh, teams that work very closely together so whenever we have a new feature request the teams decide what it will entail on different sites uh, from different teams and uh, i think the other benefit of having that is we end up coming up uh, we end up coming up with a better solution than what you know sometimes i feel so i've had several cases where i would say yeah this particular feature i'm going to go build it this way but just because i was discussing it with someone on uh, in that team i ended up getting to a better solution which made it more scalable which made it uh, work for other platforms as well yeah and i think in order for us to work independently or loosely coupled as you put it uh, usual is you still have to have those conversations like up front too is like sometimes we are working on projects at different times maybe the ui is ready to start building something but the back end is still working on a previous project or is is tied up and not able to jump on that right away but i think having those conversations up front you can work out what that contract's going to look like and at least align on that and then hopefully once everything's done on both ends they just kind of work together and tie up and i think that's been really beneficial and without a conversation here just hoping that those things will work and and it's it's never the case and things do change we we start with that uh, the things keep on changing from the back end side when you come up with a mock maybe a stub at first and allows uh, your client allow your client to build something independently in parallel and there's chances that things change. But the best way is to just keep uh, the other person informed about the changes that you are encountering and how it will impact the other person. I think that's something I feel we do a really good job at as well. We have these Slack channels and other places which we use uh, we a lot. And I think that's another thing to remember when collaborating. I think So what I'm hearing from both of you is it's really the ownership model is that it's very clear in that this section I own 
I can write tests against this contract, but you own it. If something is misdisplaying in the UI, it's not necessarily your concern because you say, I'm getting this data, I'm giving out this data, and that's correct to the best of my knowledge. And then as a UI engineer, I need to track down what the issue is. I, I think that is kind of the essence of collaboration. It's just like, if something's broken, I can say like, hey, it's not coming out right. You're like, cool, I'm on it. And then I can go off, do whatever I need to do versus I need to track it down and then talk to the right mm -hmm. team, the right team. That's, you handle that. If the UI is misbehaving or the logic's incorrect, I handle that. And that, that like really clear handoff is mm -hmm. really important to collaboration. We talked about the separation uh, between the two teams, but how important is it to know what the other discipline is doing? How much does the back end need to know about what the front end's doing? How much does the front end need to know about the back end? Interesting. I think um, in terms of the technologies, we shouldn't have to know too much. I think we've, you know, we've developed this protocol as we've been discussing. And as long as the two, two entities communicate that protocol, things should just work. And we shouldn't have to care too much about the technologies being used on, on the other side. But I guess, you know, there are, there are certain things that we must know about. Uh, sign up on different platforms. Different platforms have different requirements. They, they may be boot up differently. They have a different sequence of events that needs to take place. And both sides need to agree on sort of what should happen during those sequences. To, so there is, to some degree, some things we need to consider. And that comes down to, you know, the collaboration. Um, but in terms of technologies, we don't need to know too much. In terms of tackling the actual uh, business problem, sometimes there are things we need to share. Um, I don't know if you'd like to add to that. Yeah, I guess that's true. Uh, details about technology or how something is being implemented doesn't really add that much value it probably i mean out of curiosity you can learn about those things but it doesn't really add that much value but i think uh, there is a lot of value to be gained from just knowing the overall architecture of how teams are doing different things so that that enables you to come up with a better solution and also when you're going for example if a ui team has a request and they want backend team to build it just knowing about how the backend team goes about doing things, like what uh, what uh, what is the design layer for them, it will at least uh, enable you to ask the right questions and maybe even think about whether this particular feature, the way your request, you thinking about that request, should that change a little bit as well? Because you know sometimes uh, UI engineers very much focused on their platform would come bring a requirement from their perspectives, but if they know that backend service is serving all these different platforms as well. How can this help others? And if they have a little bit of idea of what overall uh, request flow looks like in, on the uh, backend side, that just leads to, I've seen that that leads to a better discussion about what, you know, and a better discussion about how this should be done. And also more trust in each other's team as well, because, you know, Backend teams are not going to say yes to everything <laughs> you are requesting either. So there's going to be changes there. So if you have that trust that, hey, I understand why, uh, what are some of the causes that might, uh, some of the reasons that might cause this, um, I think you just go about those discussions slightly differently. That makes sense. I also, I like that you guys both touched on like business logic or even like the platform that you're working on and under, at least both having an understanding what the capabilities are and also what you're trying to achieve for the business, I think is super important. But yeah, I guess you don't really care if you're, which 
javascript framework we're using you're like cool it's it's being rendered that's great it does help to know that yes before you call us you call the other services to get some information so whenever we get a request from some place about getting a new data field we know that ui has this capability so we can uh, reach out to UI at that point. So it's good to know those things. And it's not like we don't know anything about the UI. I actually, I actually enjoy going in and uh, when I'm debugging stuff, open up the dev tools in Chrome and step through the, the data model in React. And I mean, that's, I, I think if you want to learn it, it's there. That's true. That's a good point. I, I think all UI engineers should build APIs at some point. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> to me, being a good engineer is being well-rounded. You don't have to be an expert at Java, but it's helpful to know something about another programming language outside of JavaScript or Python or Java. Like whatever your primary is, learn another one or at least like have some passing familiarity. But yeah, it's important for UI engineers or front end engineers to build some sort of back end service so you understand the complexity of, of like load balancers and like cookies and authorization is insanely complex that it's something that you take for granted as a as a front end engineer until you have to do it and you're like Wait, what? You have to you have to manage the cookies, but you have to expire them, and then you have to renew them. You have to. It's so complex, and it gives you healthy respect for what people do on the other side. Uh, on the flip, backend engineers should write some UI code because I, I've been places where there's a oh, it's just HTML, JavaScript. Like just put it up there and <laughs> CSS. Yeah, it's just, yeah CSS. Get, get everybody. Uh, but again, it's you're like oh crap, this is actually really hard to to build for and like these all these complexities you have to think about so i think doing that uh, i know eric you've done a bit of ui work i have and uh, most people are saying uh that ui engineers should write these ui <laughs> <laughs> it has been i came in as more of a full stack engineer i always was more of a build the entire application i, I liked building the entire application usually monoliths you know i didn't really uh, get exposed to the the type of architecture we're discussing here today until Netflix because we're doing um, I think we're sort of leading the way in terms of some of these uh, you know handing all the control off to the server so uh, but I think it's I've always loved dabbling on the UI and the back end and I'll continue building the the odd UI it, it really helps you like to Jem's point it's like it helps you build empathy and also probably helps the conversations when you're collaborating because you get a better sense of what the other discipline is capable of and where that business logic should live or you know where this interaction should happen and and I think it does really help you be more well-rounded but also to help you have a better conversation with the fellow team member a lot of what helps is uh, a common logging platform and common metrics that are visible to everybody on all teams so that it doesn't matter where the request comes from I know where it ends up and it's in wherever some pipeline but it ends up in kibana or whatever platform you use and then that's where i know that backend engineers they look so i look there too so we have this shared understanding about like hey i noticed this and here's an exact log file so we like this common vocabulary between the two of us even though we're writing two different languages there's this unified place to look and yeah. same for any server metrics things like that i say like hey the server is not doing well and i can pull up the dashboard where you two look Say like, oh, this this thing's out of memory right here. Like, let's go chase that down. I think that's really helpful. Like, we all share this common common understanding. And our Kibana tool actually is being used by UI teams a lot. So that's that's to your point, Ryan. It's just that it, it is effective because UI engineers know what they're looking for. They know what our service, the backend service, is doing. How when they are writing these different events, so they can 
uh, interpret a lot of information just by looking at the logs. They can even find out some issues in their request. So before even reaching us, they know what was wrong and they can debug it or solve it themselves. Same thing with us. Before we, uh, and that's another, I guess, uh, important thing when working in this uh, more collaborative environment is everyone has to do their part. So it's important that you make sure that you've tested all the things yourself before you go ask someone else to spend time on it. Because oftentimes you are able to catch it through logs, through other things. If you don't have those, maybe invest in tools first. Because that's very important, I guess. That's how you uh, have this better relationship with each other because you know that, hey, if the other person is reaching out, chances are it's on my side, so I should just immediately look at it. And uh, and that comes from just knowing a little bit about how other systems work as well. I think it's important what you said there, though, too, is having the expectation that each other has done a bit of investigation first because like then it's not just throw it over the fence model where it's, ah, it's broken on their end. I'll just throw it at them. It's like, hey, I've looked at this is how I came to that conclusion that right. it's on your end. Something's happening. Here's what I tested and tried. And that ends up being a lot better of a relationship versus the like, ah, it's not my problem. You You go deal with it. Yeah, and it sounds so obvious, but I've seen so many, I guess, in the previous companies, so many times where because people are just not investing enough time uh, front and then reaching out to someone else, and that just breaks the trust. Like other person, sometimes it's their issue, but they they don't want to invest in it. They'll let it sit there for several days and then go back to it. Yeah, I think uh, it might, might just be our team culture, but one of the things... Um that I think about is whenever I find that the UI like or any other team actually comes to us and says like hey can you look into this issue for us I think of it as almost like we treat it almost like a forcing function in our team to improve our tooling to make sure that we can enable our partners to better serve themselves because ultimately we're all going to be better off if we can understand the system a little bit better and uh, so yeah I think it's I mean, that shared responsibility around looking at the data and understanding it is, yeah, sort of critical to our success. Otherwise, our team would just be a huge bottleneck for every every query that came in around like, you know, why is this field not there? What happened when the, the user clicked this button and they didn't go to this other page where I expected them to? So It's helping scale yourself in that exactly. way too so yeah, that you're not exactly. getting every question. So we've talked a lot about like building this separate, like separating concerns and, you know, having more of a uh, server driven uh, business logic for the UI. How would you approach this? Like usual, you're obviously here at Netflix in some of those conversations. I came in midway as we were migrating. But what if someone wants back end or front end wants to move to this in their companies? Like what advice would you all give to someone wanting to move to that protocol? I guess the first advice would be there has to be a strong motivation <laughs> because uh, it requires the commitment f- not just for the short term, but for a very long term. UIs should be comfortable with not having that control over the code because it does, I guess there is a trade-off. They can move much more faster if they have full control and if they're trying to fix or build a feature, now you have to depend on another team. So there has to be that proper Uh, you you have to think about all the dependency you're introducing by having a structure like this and the other thing is you should do it when it's more than one system like for us we have different platforms that are supporting sign up flow in different ways and that adds all the values but if you have just one platform for example browser doing it it might be an over optimization to build a system like this so you, you there should be more than one use case to build it so that you can build a centralized uh, system or backend service 
service which knows a little bit about all these different platforms and can kind of in a way personalize it according to the to, to the platform so that helps a lot in, in that case too and you uh, the third thing is it's uh, about you have to have those expertise uh where ui teams are pretty expert at just doing the ui stuff and of course i guess there's uh back end teams are expert at doing their stuff so they can both you have this le- separation layer which then that means you lead to some apis that are well, <laughs> cheers <laughs> cheers yes. and uh, you mentioned Ryan that um yes i was here when this discussion was happening and to be honest i think it took people by surprise initially that there was nobody at least thought that this is a good way of doing it the way we got it is a new platform was trying to onboard sign up and they didn't want to do all of the work that everyone else has already done so that's why we started having this discussion and i guess it took a little bit convincing even for the backend team because that's the backend team is right now responsible for so much stuff and it's not easy to take on that kind of responsibility and you need other things you need to have tools like kibana you need to have enough monitoring alerting in place because you're supporting so many different systems and if you are you're not able to track exactly what your every single change is going to have an impact on uh, these different systems it's going to be a nightmare because then you will get request and uh, uh, or issues from all over the places it's going to be very difficult so before you can go in you have to be prepared to invest in automation integration testing you have to get comfortable with testing each and every single use case and use uh, flow so that's going to be there and again we i think that we are more like an extension of our ui so we get involved in almost all the projects that ui team is working on so it's you have to have that relationship that uh, kind of you know a teamwork that with the with the UIs as well that you can work very closely and you have to have that culture in the company where teams enjoy working together. Yeah, I think another thing to add to is we talk about this is we have fairly decent sized teams and I think this model really works well for that when you can separate those concerns and there are companies like some smaller startups where it may not make sense to invest as heavily in something like this but there are ways that you can make a smaller investment but maybe you start testing this out on a isolated feature or page you don't have to go full blown on this model that you can start to test into this and see how it works rather than investing heavily in it because i think that could be a huge expense for a company to go that model i think there's a lot of benefits for doing it but kind of test your way into it try it out see what works and what doesn't rather than trying to get the perfect solution right at the start all right well let's uh hop into uh, picks at the end of the, each episode we like to usually choose picks of things that we found useful or interesting for our listeners let's go around the table and share picks for today's episode Usually you want to start it off. Okay, yes. So I mentioned I went to Chicago recently. Was great. Yeah. Uh, except for the weather. <laughs> it was raining and, you know, fun. Could have been worse. It could have been worse. Could have been. Yes. But I was uh, I asked a friend and they told me that in Chicago food is really good and that is actually so true. Outside of the drinks, the food is also amazing. So I tried their um, spicy chicken at uh, Peri Peri. That's really good. You should try that if you go right. sometime. It's amazing. And I tried a few more places as well, burger places and other things, and all in Chicago downtown. Um, I feel like when will I go t- again there? So, pretty so Chicago is Ch- a good place to Chicago be. Chicago for food, downtown is even better. Yes. 
Right on. Eric, what do you have for us? Uh, nothing about food. Recently I watched, oh, this isn't a Netflix show actually, but uh, <laughs> the doc- it's not a requirement. Free Solo. Have you guys watched this show? It's a documentary on basically climbing a giant granite, granite cliff in a granite wall in Yosemite. Definitely worth watching. Uh, imagine climbing a 3,000-foot granite wall with no ropes. Yep, not it's, for me. Don't think I could do it. <laughs> yeah. I found that like uh, really interesting to watch. I was, you know, you're kind of, there's a lot of suspense, but you're also, there's a moral a moral issue there. Like, if he falls off when I'm filming this, like, what happens? So, um, super interesting. Um, other picks. Speaking of picks, actually, I recently bought a new guitar. Was, wow. <laughs> That's very meta at that <laughs> <Yeah>. point. <laughs> Yep. Was Mar- it a good pick? Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, it Martin OM28. <laughs> yeah. I dreamt about this guitar for like 10 years and I finally bought it and I was like, yeah. Right it's, on. It's amazing. Nice. So that's what I'm doing outside of outside of work these days. Is playing a lot of guitar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, nice. You should bring it in someday for work. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> yeah. like Maybe this. next happy hour. Yeah. <laughs> Jim, what do you have for us? Uh, I've got two picks for today. I mean, I've watched some good Netflix stuff watch a lot of bad Netflix stuff too. So, you know. So it could be the anti-pick. <laughs> I should start things to it. avoid. All right. I got three picks. because I do have a Netflix show that is like just great. Uh, my first pick is uh, 507 Mechanical Movements. This is something I ran into years ago on the internet and this popped into my feed at, at some point. It is fascinating. Like as an engineer, like understanding how all these gears and things move, you're like, how would I make a gear that sometimes runs, but it runs like once a minute? but it's like constantly running on engine. Like how do you design something like that? And this site like has all these different types of movements like that. It's just so fascinating what engineers have come up with to solve these problems. It's, it's something I don't think about very often. Like how does my car work? How does the, how do the gears on that change over time? And like, but the engine never stops and things like that. It answers these questions. It's, it's really fascinating for the engineer in me. My pick for Valley Silicon. That is my portion of the show where I pick something that is outrageous, extreme, and only exists because people have too much money, mostly in Silicon Valley. Um, my pick for Valley Silicon is this uh, $270 toaster. Uh, it is from uh, Philips. Oh, no, sorry. It's from Mitsubishi. It only makes one piece of bread at a time, and it's $270. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so what's special about it? Apparently, it makes toast perfectly. If you're a toast connoisseur or you need to get a gift for someone who has everything already. This perfect toaster will probably do the trick. I feel like I, it I, needs <laughs> to make more slices, though. Like, I feel like one is just doesn't make sense. I really want to try it, though. I, like, I want to taste what a $270 toaster will do. <laughs> like, <laughs> apparently, it's amazing. But, you know, I, I don't think I'll ever wow. find out. So, Jim, when you get it, then I'll also like to try. <laughs> Same here. Uh, and my last pick is a Netflix show, probably one of my favorite shows. It's called It's Bruno. They're really short. They're probably maybe 11 to 15 minutes an episode, but it's about a guy in Brooklyn and his dog and the adventures he has in his neighborhood. That's it. That's the whole show. Um, it's so good. It's like hands down one of my favorite shows on on Netflix. Awesome. I have not seen it, so I need to check this out. You should definitely right. definitely check it out. All right. I have three picks. I added on a Netflix uh, show just to... May as well. So... I'm choosing the Google Home Hub. Essentially, it is picture like Google Home or Alexa with the ability that it has a screen on it. I like it. You still get the nice voice interactions, but it does a lot more where you can hook up to like cameras and other integrations that now you have visual aspect to it. So I've 
just recently got it and been playing around with it. I really like it. It's kind of cool. And then I was also recently in Toronto and forgot how much I love Hawkins cheesies. I like <laughs> cannot get them in the US and I bought a bunch of them while I was there and now I'm all out of them. So yes, very good. If you were in Canada, maybe you know, Eric, you might be able to understand. Mm-hmm. What you do just, you think? You just reminded me of another pick actually, which <laughs> might be... Uh, X-Pack. Oh, so I signed up for X-Pack as a Canadian living abroad. I think X-Pack has other countries as well, but they They do. They will send you a shipment every month with things from home. Yeah. And I got those cheesies recently as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. My third pick is, I've actually picked it before, but there's a season two now, is Bad Blood, which talking about Canadian things based off some true events in like a mafia in Montreal. So it's on its second season. I really enjoyed the first one. I highly recommend checking out the second season as well. Just recently finished it. So definitely recommend it. Before we end the episode, I want to thank you, Joel and Eric, for joining us. It was a pleasure having both of you join us. Where can people get in touch with you? I'll share my LinkedIn and Twitter handles. Uh, I guess you will be pasting it there. Yep. Yes, so you can get me get in touch with me on. I'm very active on LinkedIn these days for some reason, <laughs> and Twitter. You're, you're the one. You're the one yeah. <laughs> my Twitter handle is yours Tyagi. Tyagi is my last name. It's U R S T Y A G I. Yeah, uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. On Twitter, I have a um, just my first initial and last name, so E Eisworth. E-I-S-W-E-R-T-H. And LinkedIn, Eric Eisworth. There's not many of me. Uh, it's nice. It's nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty rare. <laughs> and Jem, where can people get in touch with you? Send me a letter to Netflix corporate. Ooh, that's, <laughs> yeah, that, yeah that's they a, actually can send that. Uh, I've gotten some stickers in the mail and things like that. Yeah. It's nice, yeah. yeah send, me, send me like a postcard or something. That'd be nice. All right. And you can find me on Twitter at Burgess D. Ryan. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. Make sure to subscribe to Front End Happy Hour podcast on whatever you like to listen to podcasts on. And you can follow us on Twitter at Front End HH. Any last words? Wait, so Hawkins Cheesies are just Cheetos, but Canadian? Oh my God. They're so much better than Cheetos. You'll have to bring them here now. <laughs>